If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist-recommended facial moisturizer brand. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, and we're pleased to bring you a very special offer. Subscribe to BBC History magazine today, and you can choose a book worth up to £30. Choose from either Queens of the Crusades by Alison Weir, The Children of Ashenelm by Neil Price, Agent Sonia by Ben McIntyre, or The Story of China by Michael Wood. Not only that, you'll also get every issue of BBC History magazine delivered direct to your door, all from just £22.45. To take advantage of this fantastic offer, visit our official online store at buysubscriptions.com forward slash history book. This promotion is only available for UK residents and while stocks last. You'll receive your book within 28 days of ordering. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from Robert Coles. Robert's latest book, This Sporting Life, Sport and Liberty in England, 1760 to 1960, charts a national obsession with sporting pursuits, from early 19th century prize fights to the transformational effect that industrialisation had on the popularity of football. He spoke to our production editor, Spencer Mizzen. Okay, um, Robert, uh, your new book, uh, which is called This Sporting Life, explores the role that sport has played within English civil society over the past two centuries. Um, 
Now, I was quite interested in the in the subtitle, which is Sport and Liberty in England, 1760 to 1960. Now, I wonder if you could just begin by telling me what, what in particular connects liberty to sport? Yeah. <clears throat> well, you were surprised with that subtitle. So was I. <laughs> I thought I was just exploring the, you might call the anthropology or the social history of how sport appears in every part of our civil society. I thought that's what I was doing. And for half the book, I was doing that. And then it just hit me, as these things do, that there is something particularly freeing and incisive uh, and personal about sport in the same way there is about liberty. And the closer I came to think, more I came to think about that, um, the more it all fitted. Uh, William James, uh, the philosopher who you'll know, um, said that for him, the first act of free will was to believe in free will. And if you think about a sporting contest, it's entirely about free will, one person's free will or one team's free will acting against another. So I took it from there. Okay, now you've chosen a, a time frame of, um, of two centuries. I mean, would you argue that modern sport was born 200 years ago? Yeah, well, um, as E.P. Thompson said uh, many years ago, um, things don't really get born in history. Or if they do, they're present at their own birth. So let's put it this way. We had traditional sport and then we had modern sport and there wasn't a birth in the middle. Traditional sport lived itself into modern sport. It shed some of its old characters, characteristics. It kept some others. So, yes, it, it's a fair point, Spencer. I took the last 200 years because, um, as historians used to say, it's my period. But also because that's when sport really does become uh, uh, different, fundamentally different in one sense, but the same in another sense. And it's that difference in sameness that I've been trying to capture. What distinguishes the two? What distinguishes traditional sport, as you call it, from modern sport? Well, essentially, the old meaning of sport, we've rather lost. It's become, if you look it up in the dictionary, the old meaning is called archaic. But if you just go back to 1905, Chambers' first modern dictionary, um, the first meaning it gives sport is, in fact, what is now called the archaic meaning. And that is simply to play, to have fun, to amuse yourself, to show off. As the old um, aristocracy used to say, it's doing what you want to do. So we, I suppose the old name is to disport. I bet you've done a bit of disporting somewhere even today. I've been round the park. I don't know where you've been. There were people sporting their lives all over the park this morning. And it's that old sense that really I'm interested in. The modern understanding of sport becomes much more serious much more timed, professional, and team-based. And I try to deal with both. And how important would you say that sport has been to English civil society over the past two centuries? 
Well, um, the great Ross McKibben started off by saying it was um, it was central to English civil society, and I I was a little bit inspired by that as I was by him, and I thought, yeah, I'll have a look at that. I'll have a look at what that actually means because you know, part of a great civil culture. Bit of an abstract phrase that. Let's let's unpack it. So I started the book thinking, yes, it was part of our civil culture, um, but not particularly an important part. That's how I started. Actually, not important, you see, because in a way trivial. Um, but by the end of the book, I changed my mind. I think it's a really big and important part of our life and the way we see ourselves, and what we do as human beings. So what made you change your mind? It was just, first of all, the way sport, play, amusement, fun, was deeply creative. All genuine creative activities begin with a complete mess, with playing around, if you like. And every sporting action takes mess takes play and turns it into something, it can turn it into something beautiful. It's everywhere. It's part of our nature. I mean, if it's trivial, then we are trivial. Um, Martin Amos calls it the war on cliché. I just call it play. Um, Everything we do involves this. I mean, economists tell stories. Poets play with words. You and I, actually, in our exchange now, We'll probably sport a bit. We'll probably play a bit with each other's thoughts, ideas, backgrounds. It's how we are. And how do you define sport? <laughs> it's, but, but the way the way, way you've been describing it so far, is, it sounds like it's quite wide-ranging. It's very wide-ranging, of course, uh, historically. I haven't actually tried to define it in the book. In fact, the beginning of the book really shows my dissatisfaction with any kind of theory or definition. Um, I don't like applying things to history. I, all the worst history I've ever written applied theories or definitions to something. The best history I've ever written came out of the subject itself. So the way I've tried to understand sport in the book is with the people and the time and the culture that was producing it. So if it's parish customs, I take their view of it. If it's Manchester United... I take their view of it. Now, we as the, um, as the English or British, we, we like to remind ourselves that we played a big part in the codification of some of the world's most popular sports, um, you know, such as football, cricket and rugby. I mean, would you say the sport is more embedded in English culture than other cultures around the world? Or is that just a story we like to tell ourselves? <clears throat> it's certainly a story we like to tell ourselves. Um, but then all countries have the stories they tell themselves. Um, I think, you know, on the world stage, if that's what you're talking about, obviously um, the British were massively influential in the modern period. Um, not just the empire, but all the formal empire and the informal empire of trade and export. Also part of Europe and hugely important in the transatlantic system. Um, yeah, we punched above our weight. And if you were Argentinian or Indian, 
and wanted to associate, for whatever reason, with British dynamism, um, you would be interested in sport. It was a very cheap and simple way to identify with the British. Your first chapter um, doesn't address football, cricket or rugby, but perhaps surprisingly, fox hunting. Why did you choose to begin there? And what can fox hunting tell us about our relationship with sport? Why did that surprise you, Spencer? Because I was imagining it would you would start with the most the, popular, the same, same ones, most yeah. popular sport. Exactly, yeah. Well, partly it was chance, and partly it made sense. It was chance because, to be honest with you, when I first started this research with a, a large grant from Leverhulme, I got really stuck. Um, it's not like politics or economics, where there's somewhere to go in the archive or in the newspaper. All I got was a lot of results. <laughs> and so I didn't really know what to do. And I spent three months getting quite depressed about what to do with all these little accounts of a sporting contest. Anyway, just on a pure whim, because I fancied going there, I went to Cumberland. And while I was in Cumbria, staying at Calderbeck, actually staying in a pub where Do You Ken John Peel was written, the great pub, um, I came across fox hunting in Cumberland. And the first thing I noticed was it was completely different to fox hunting in Leicestershire. Fox hunting in Leicestershire was very aristocratic, very expensive, very fast, very fashionable. Fox hunting in Cumbria, half of it was done on foot, dragging yourself across the fells. So I, I got it immediately then. I, I got a start I had a, a single subject, but with different regional and class ways of doing it. So I got a good start there. And then the second thing was really, of course, that fox hunting expressed the ruling class in all the um, assumptions it made about why it was the ruling class and why it was there. And especially the ruling class's insistence that although we had a class-based society, we were nevertheless free. We were nevertheless at liberty. This is the great English myth, if you like. So I thought it was a good place to start in that sense. The point about fox hunting for the aristocracy was, of course, that this country was so free, you could ride anywhere you wanted to ride according to the whim of a very small little red animal called a fox. How free is that? Okay. So, so what did fox hunting, by contrast, mean to uh, the working classes? Well, I think they pretty much ignored it. There's some nice pictures in the Yale Centre for British Art of fox hunters trotting through a Leicestershire village on Christmas Day, about 1860, and they, they are all chatting away, having a great time. I mean, who wouldn't have a great time on a horse? Um, but there's some little kids watching them holding bundles of firewood under their arms, which they've been out getting for Christmas Day fire. And they're just looking up at these horses, at these intensely fashionable and attractive people. And I think that picture really sums it up. I mean, more generally, do you think sport has sharpened or... Uh, blurred the the class divides in Britain over the past 200 years? Great question. 
Um, I'm sorry, but I'm going to be really boring again. It's both. <laughs> sure. It sharpens the it sharpened the class divide just based on the story I've told you. Yeah. I mean, put it this way: when poor when rich people went out looking for animals on the land, it was called hunting. When poor people did it, it was called poaching. Uh, and chapter two deals with all the difference between hunting a fox and hunting um, birds of the air in Weirdale. A fox in Leicestershire, birds of the air in Weirdale. What's the difference? Well, one can send you to the other side of the earth in chains. So in that sense, let's just say it sharpened the class divide. But in another sense, the excitement, the thrill, what I've called the visceral pleasure of sport, of course, unites us all. And when we get into team games and when the classes start playing each other, or indeed when the races start playing each other, it's a great platform for liberty and equality. Cool. Now, you also take us to um, a Lincolnshire market town called Stamford, um, where for many years, until the mid-19th century, the people have practised the, the tradition of running a ball to death. Now, you write that this is banned by, with the help of middle-class liberals in the 19th century. You also write that once that happened, um, many people at Stamford some way felt that they somehow been, they'd somehow they lost the power to, to run their own lives. Um, I mean, what do you mean by that? <clears throat> well, um, here we move, we're moving, uh, it's still about liberty. It's still about the freedom of the poor to do what they want. Uh, I mean, you know, um, rich people killed animals. That was never banned. Um, these poor people are running a bull to death. A pretty shabby and scruffy custom, I have to say, but it was their custom. And they believed, uh, as did the whole country believe, at law and in the Constitution, that custom was who you were. And that interfering with custom was a big step. Now, in the modern period, we've got very used to customs being smashed, communities being broken up in the name of gross domestic product, um, globalization, whatever. But for early 19th century uh, English people, breaking custom was a, a really, a really, um, um, sharp-ended thing to do. It was part of who they were, and the people of Stamford thought they'd been doing it for 600 years. Suddenly, a lot of people from London come in and say, you can't. Well, of course, they felt some part of Stamford had been lost and some part of themselves with it. There's, there's a word that appears quite a few times in your book, which is called bottom. In fact, there's a <laughs> chapter entitled bottom. Can you um, just explain what you mean by that word? Yeah. Yeah, I have to be careful with that word, actually. <laughs> it's me coming out of, um, you know, it gets a bit tricky when you talk about boxers showing their bottom. But actually, that's how um, early journalists talked about it. Some of the great early sports journalists were reporters of boxing or what was then called prize fighting. And a man who had bottom was able to keep going, to take enormous amounts of punishment and give it back. 
And this was considered a particularly English and indeed a particularly Irish um, attribute. Okay. We would call it heart now or courage, but it was, it was seen as um, it's what English and Irish prize fighters were good at. And that in turn became a kind of military virtue. It was part of civil society in the sense that good soldiers in what were called regiments of the line showed their bottom. They could take punishment. Regiments of the line, Spencer, in battle, just moved forward. They took it all. And then at some point they stopped, unfurled their collars, went on the colours, I mean, unfurled their colours, went on one knee and fired. This kind of quality was broadly accepted as admirable. It was, if you like, the plebeian part of national identity. So do you ascribe to the the view that sport is war without the shooting? Yeah, that was that was all well. Um no, not not entirely. It can be, of course, um, particularly if it's between nation states, eleven players each side each one wearing a little badge, one saying Germany, one saying England, let's put it that way. And the great historian E.J. Hobsbawm, for instance, thought this was the most powerful expression of national identity he could think of. But in fact, my book plums a lot deeper than that. Um, It goes into, it's not really about war, it's about expression. It's not really about enemies, it's about home. It's not really about alienation, it's about belonging. So there's a softer side, a more inclusive side to sport, the kind of sport I'm trying to describe, than what emerged in the 20th century as elite sport between nations. Now, in in the chapter entitled Bottom, you describe a boxing match between an English boxer and an Irish-American in in Hampshire. I wonder if you could just describe what happened there. Yeah, uh, the book always... Every chapter starts with what the great American anthropologist Clifford Geertz called deep, thick description. So every chapter has a thick description of an actual event. And this is a fight. And um, it takes place in 1860 in a field between the so-called English champion, Tom Sayers, and the so-called American champion, John Camel Heenan, Irish-American. Both men were clearly um, being offered as champions. Sayers certainly was. He had had a long professional career, fighting anywhere and everywhere. Whereas Heenan was a much younger man. He was, a, he was an enforcer, really. He was a, a bouncer, a minder for the Irish fraternity in... Uh, in uh, New York. Um, He's a gang man, really. But anyway, he was a big, hard lad, and here he was going to prove it against the English champion Sayers. Um, All kinds of people had come down from London to see the fight. It was rumoured that the Prime Minister Palmerston was there. It was rumoured that members of royalty there were there. But certainly the so-called fancy, fancy of men who followed boxing, we now get the word fan, from that. They were there. There's a lot of money flying on this. And um, 7 a.m., they went toe to toe. Heenan said um, to Sayers, the Englishman, lovely morning. 
Heenan said, do you want to bet on it? <laughs> <laughs> and they then went 37 rounds. Um, these are not three-minute rounds. They went on for hours hitting each other till both men essentially were disabled and the fight ended in chaos. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The problem is that to be influential, you've got to be more than your sport. You've got to be more than great. George Best was... I've got friends who have who saw him and assured me he was the best they'd ever saw. But how influential was George Best? I'm not sure about that. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, why do you think girls were sidelined from sport for so long? Um, as you mentioned in, in, in your book, they were obviously just as capable of learning new skill sets as boys. So what explains that? I never got to the bottom of this, to be honest. Um, I could never really work out why girls couldn't do what they did anyway. They were strong in the neighbourhood. They were strong in the arm. They were fleet. They were quick-witted. They did everything a boy could do. And yet certain modern sports excluded them, and particularly, of course, football. I'm talking about working class girls here. If you want to talk about upper class girls, it's another story. But somehow they were excluded. And let's just say, I think it began on the street. There were gender demarcations in the street from the 1860s that applied. Girls didn't play. It seems they didn't want to play. And they were certainly not invited to play. The other point, of course, is that Early football, um, professional football, took on industrial forms of labour. 
So young men were apprenticed. We still call them apprentices. Young men were apprenticed to clubs like they were apprenticed to firms. And of course, girls were outside apprenticeship. So that might have been another reason for their exclusion. And then before they knew where they were, they'd reached puberty and their mothers needed them not outside the house, but inside the house. None of this is to say girls didn't sport. They all sported in that old way we started that interview with. They skipped, they ran, they chased, all that. But football, somehow, no. Till, of course, the First World War, when suddenly there's this amazing explosion of women's football out of the factories. Now, you you mentioned football there, and obviously it's... I suppose it's fair to describe it as the most popular sport in the world at the moment. Um, now you just you described the factory reforms of the 1850s as a kind of a transformational moment in the growth of football. I mean, why is that? Well, um, there'd always been forms of football, um, basically kicking kicking some kind of ball around. Right back to medieval times, we can find references to it, but it was a folk sport. It was done occasionally here and there for a lark. Um, But something quite amazing happened in the 1840s and 30s and 40s. That is, we became an industrial society. And those places that suffered most from that, Yorkshire and Lancashire, we could say, um, found large numbers of people severely curtailed in time and place. You know, the whole point about the factories was they, they, they imprisoned you. They were not nice places. And then suddenly in the 1850s, you get some very serious factory legislation that gives, essentially gives working class people Saturday afternoon off. Sunday was still verboten for sport, unless you wanted to break all kinds of rules. But Saturday afternoon was an absolute gift. So that happens in the 1850s. It's Lancashire that leads the way in football at the outset and maybe the Midlands. Um, And then in the 1860s, a bunch of public school boys come up with a, a common and universal code for football, which they call association football. And very soon, working class boys are playing that on their Saturday afternoon. By the 1880s, you have a Saturday economy based around football in the afternoon and basically going out, drinking, cavorting, may I say, disporting in the evening. You probably know all about that. <laughs> Not for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Um, now, in researching this book, Robert, you, you obviously came across quite a few colourful characters, whether they be prize fighters, footballers, or fox hunters. I mean, are there any that really stand out for you that you can tell us about? Well, I mean, we, I start with a, an upper class uh, American uh, woman called Minna, Minna Burnaby, who rides with the Corn Hunt in Leicestershire. Minna is small, sharp, and American. And the place she, the role she played in the county set in the 1920s and 30s is really, really interesting. It tells you an awful lot about the Conservative Party, the county gentry, what was expected 
of someone like her who was the wife of the master of hounds. The master of hounds came very high in the county hierarchy and Minna was his wife. He was called Algy, by the way. So I'd have to say Minna, I won't forget. The other person I'd like to mention, if I can, is Bill Richmond. Actually, all the prize fighters are interesting characters. But Bill Richmond is particularly interesting. Um, he was picked up in 1776 in the American War of Independence with the British by Major Hugh Smithson, who later became the Duke of Northumberland. Right. Smithson was a general in the British Army fighting the American patriots, and he took a 13-year-old little black kid called Bill Richmond and brought him home. And um, brought him home to Annick Castle, my God. <laughs> apprenticed him to a cabinet maker in York. And the next thing we know, Bill's in London fighting for his life. And he's a really great prize fighter. He's a bit light for the heavy guys, but he still fights them. Uh, he fights the great English champion Tom Cribb when they were both young men, and it's pretty close, but Cribb takes it. Uh, and he becomes one of the cool set of prize fighters in Georgian London. He is accepted into that fraternity, along with a lot of Bristolians, I may say, like Cribb. Cribb and Belcher, the Belcher family were Bristolians. Tom Cribb was a Bristolian. He's accepted into that scene. And in 1820, he stands guard at Westminster Abbey while a very unpopular king is, is crowned. So Bill Richmond, dressed as a page boy with Tom Cribb, can you imagine it, on the doors <laughs> of Westminster Abbey. Do you think that um, sports history has been neglected over the years? Yeah, I do. That I do, actually, Spencer. Um, given the, the amount of time and affection and love that was lavished on it by the whole country and something the whole country knows, you know this, I know this, our mothers know this, you didn't have to play football to be interested in it. So given that fact, it's rather been neglected. And um, I'm not sure why. I remember when I was a, a young postgrad at York University, the wonderful Welsh historian Gwyn Williams, a, an inspirational character. I remember him um, tut-tutting the fact that Jim Walvin, who was a young historian then, was writing a book about football. So the historian of the proletariat couldn't understand why anyone should want to write about football. But in the end, the message was the same in social history. Find the people and bring them on. And Jim did that for football in the 1970s, as Gwynne did it for revolutionaries. So Jim Walvin did it first in the 1970s. Tony Mason did a great book on football also in the 1970s. But I think the real breakthrough came in 1980 when Professor uh, Richard Holt um, produced a book called Sport and the British uh, for Oxford University Press. It's still in print. He's rewriting it now. And um, this was the great breakthrough. It showed that sport was indeed one of our great civil cultures. Do you think books like Nick Hornby's Fever Pitch played a part in that as well? Um, well, Nick Hornby's Fever Pitch isn't, isn't academic. 
it what it is is part of that rich undercurrent of sporting life. I call the book this sporting life. We've not been book short of books on this sporting life. I mean, the title of my book is taken from David Story's wonderful novel, This Sporting Life, which is about rugby league. That was 1960. Nick Hornby's Fever Pitch, which is, after all, about the love of a football ground, um, that's 1990s. You can find stuff going back a century, expressing love and adoration for all kinds of sport. But it was Holt who made it academic and made made it uh, acceptable in universities. Who do you consider to be the most important sporting figure of the past 200 years? <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> That's an easy question to answer, isn't it? The thing is, uh, social historians absolutely hate questions like that <laughs> because you know we we deal with social things cultural things but anyway it's good fun to answer it it's good sport the problem is that to be influential you've got to be more than your sport you've got to be more than great you know george best was i've got friends who have who saw him and assured me he was the best they ever saw but how influential was George Best? I'm not sure about that. Um, it's same with running. Um, what? How many events did you get to run in the 19th century compared to the 20th century? Uh, how could you be famous before the Olympic Games? Um, um, so it's all about the influence you have, what, you, what counts for what you do beyond the sport itself. The story that comes out of the sport, about all that. So I'll just take a few stabs. For me, I, if you really wanted an answer to your question and you're talking about a British or British-related sportsman, I think I would say Edmund Hillary and uh, uh, Norgay Tenzing because they did something the whole world was looking at. Um, if it was going to be just statistics, I, would, I could even say beefy, you know, both of them. All those wickets, all those runs, quite astonishing. Um, if it was going to be sport in the amusing sense we've talked about, I would say C.B. Fry, who you've never heard of, but he was a public schoolboy before the First World War. He played football for England. He won an FA Cup medal. He played cricket for England. Um, he held, held the world long jump record. And his favourite sport, he did at parties. He'd jump onto a mantle shelf from a standing start backwards. So, you know, he's a real sportsman. But my choices, I'm just going to take my choices out of the air. I'm going to say my favourite sportsman, world influence, was Bobby Charlton. Because when I worked in Africa and used to play football on Saturday afternoons, all the kids did me the privilege of shouting Bobby Charlton at me. They knew him in the middle of the Sudan. And the other one I'm going to choose is Kelly Holmes because I don't think any runner has th I don't think any runner has run as beautiful except maybe Seb Coe as she runs. She's just beautiful to watch and the 800 and 1500 meters are the they're the gold, aren't they? They're the blue riband of running. And she did both in one event. So it's Kelly and it's Bobby. Okay. Um now 
sport has obviously changed dramatically over the past two centuries. Um, you know, the idea that a footballer could earn upwards of half a million pounds a week would just be ridiculous to somebody a couple of centuries ago. But do you, do you see it as still essentially the same thing? Does a thread run through sport that takes us from the 1750s to the 2020s? Yeah. If we could just take away the money uh, and take away the adoration uh, and take away the agents, <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's the same. I think it expresses that liberty, which is so important to us. But it express we express that liberty in a John Stuart Mill way, within a code, within a law, within a social ambit. It's our freedom and it's our security. Um, it's also, you know, Joe Wicks, isn't it? He calls about he talks about Captain Serotonin. It makes you feel great, even if you lose. You can't feel great. Um, and it's also about home and belonging and and being part of something that's so inclusive. So I think it does these things. That we used to represent the parish. Now, sometimes when I'm standing at Leicester City watching it, I think it's the parish on the warpath. But it's the same link, what you call the same thread. Uh, so here's to the sporting life. Cheers to that. That was Robert Coles. This Sporting Life, Sport and Liberty in England, 1760 to 1960, is published by Oxford University Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow for another lecture from our 2019 History Weekends. (laughs) 